1919, Pedro de la Lama sent a complaint to the governor of Arizona. De la Lama was representing the Liga Protectora Latina, a society dedicated to providing aid and improving the lives of Mexican immigrants in the state. The complaint he sent to the governor outlined incidents of mistreatment, manipulations, and abuses by the Arizona Cotton Growers Association toward its Mexican workers. Among the many things he listed was that the association was not fulfilling their end of contracts, were housing workers in cramped, unsanitary camps, and were paying workers not in money, but in script only good at company stores. Not to be callous, but all of this is pretty boilerplate for complaints coming from workers during this time and place, and indeed can still be heard to this day. However, there is another part of this complaint that points to something different than what you would expect. Among those De La Lama fingered as the worst offenders was a name unlike the others, Rafael Estrada. Estrada was from Pima County with various land holdings in the Salt River Valley. He was a respected businessman and had even founded a lodge in Tempe for the very Liga Protectora Latina that De La Lama represented. However, he also worked for the Cotton Growers Association to recruit new workers in Mexico, using what could be considered very shady promises. In fact, the Mexican consul in Los Angeles would later defame him as a quote-unquote renegade Mexican and a quote-unquote blonde Christ who is the epitome of a cacique, or a boss or tyrant. As accustomed as we are to painting large ethnic groups as being against each other, though they often were, the forces driving a surge of immigration into Arizona in the early 1900s made things just a bit more complicated than that. If the story of Rafael Estrada shows us anything, is that even the identifier as Mexican can come to mean many different things to different people. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 155, Mexican or Mexican? Welcome back, everyone. For the past two weeks now, we have been almost witnessing the birth of the current condition of the international border as we understand it today. We've tackled the economic and political realities that existed along that imaginary line stretching through the Sonoran Desert, and how both countries independently and cooperatively tried to make the best out of it. But here's the thing. Life is more than economics and politics. To fully understand the development of the border, we also have to explore the social and ethnic dynamics underlying all of this. So today I want to dive a little more into the social situation and explore the various ethnic groups and how they jived or clashed with each other. One of the first aspects I want to touch on is the sense of binational camaraderie that cropped up. In the border towns, separated from a Mexican counterpart by nothing more than a barbed wire fence, it's natural that the two communities should come together. After all, people were moving across the border every day to hit up their favorite saloons, restaurants, and shops, 
so it's not like there was that much separation between them. You can definitely get that feeling in the very name Ambos Nogales, both Nogaleses, two separate halves of the complete whole. And by the turn of the 20th century, you'll find celebrations along the border for a blend of Mexican and American holidays, including American Independence Day on July 4th, Mexican Independence Day on September 16th, Cinco de Mayo, and George Washington's birthday. In February 1896, the Nogales Fire Department participated in a parade to celebrate Washington's birthday and marched to the border accompanied by the Arizona National Guard. When they got to the line, the Arizona National Guard unit halted, but the fire department was then escorted through the streets of Nogales, Sonora by the Gendarmeria Fiscal, led by Colonel Emilio Kosterliski. This parade would stop to salute Mexican officials and the American consulate, while the National Guard unit went to present their arms at the Mexican consulate up in Nogales, Arizona. Everyone joined back together at the border, and the evening was spent in general festive revelry. A year earlier, the Nogales Oasis gushed about these trans-border celebrations by declaring, quote, The two nations have much in common, and the glories celebrated on their respective natal days belongs to both. The names of Washington and Hidalgo, Lincoln and Juarez, Grant and Porfirio Diaz belong singly to no race, to no nation, end quote. But let's be honest, once you promise food, booze, dancing, and fireworks, it's a good bet anyone will join in regardless of their scruples. However, the binational sentiment extended further than that, with volunteer organizations such as Masonic Lodges, and athletics clubs, women's societies, social clubs, dramatic clubs, even a young women's mandolin club, all catering to and enrolling both American and Mexican members. In something that does seem a bit unthinkable today, a new school opened up in Naco, Sonora in 1904 that was administered by the Sonoran school system, but based on the American model, and it enrolled children from both sides of the border. The opening was even yet another binational celebration with champagne toasts and what amounts to a theatrical skit by a Mexican and an American girl. This wasn't some extraordinary bit of cooperation either. American and Mexican children living in the border regions very often attended school together and played together. For all intents and purposes, they were citizens of the same community. And just for some small minutiae, author Ramon Eduardo Ruiz talks about some cultural cross-contamination happening further south in Sonora, where Americans had a substantial presence thanks to the railroads and the mines. Now, Ruiz is pointing these things out as an example of Sonora being dominated by the Yankees, and don't get me wrong, they were, but I think it's a fascinating example of watching cultures mix. Here we see significant American influence as the architecture began to mirror what could be found to the north. In societies such as the Knights of Pythias and the local branch of St. Vincent de Paul were organized with both Americans and Mexicans. Ruiz points out that a major indicator of the Yankee impact in Sonora was the introduction and popularity of baseball. The game was introduced by the crew of an American merchant ship that had docked at Guaymas in 1877, 
but by 1910, every town in Sonora had a baseball team, with Hermosillo, remember where the Yankees of Mexico lived, being acknowledged as the capital of Mexican baseball. I do find it amusing that Ruiz points out that more traditional Mexicans looked on with dismay while this new American game undercut the popularity of rival events such as bullfighting and cockfighting. Finally, there was the issue of Spanglish. Elsewhere in Mexico, a water pitcher was called a cantera or bocal, but in Sonora, those hip, chic youth started calling it a pichel. Meanwhile, the Transvaal Company in the community of Cumpas had a mine called La Ultima Chanza. The name is supposed to be the Spanish for the last chance, but in proper Spanish, it would be La Ultima Oportunidad. And then back to baseball, players talked about the pitcher and the catcher, which were, of course, loanwords from English. Okay, you probably saw this coming, but it wasn't all holding hands, singing kumbaya, sharing words, and celebrating a non-racial utopia. But before we dive into how everyone looked down their noses at Mexicans coming into the United States, we have to make a differentiation between Mexicans and Mexicans. Much like Lionel Hutz explaining to Marge Simpson the difference between the truth and the truth, there is a lot of subtext here. As my sources point out, most of the discrimination didn't fall along racial lines per se, but along class lines. Tucson, for example, had had a relatively large Mexican elite and middle class since the Gadsden Purchase, and many of this class, such as the shipping mogul and mayor Esteban Ochoa, could become some of the town's leading citizens. So, we see a divide in how people refer to Mexicans. One way is the generic descriptive sense. This or that person is from Mexico, so they are Mexican. And this was usually reserved for those leading Mexican families, either in the territory or south of the border, who were well-off and generally well-disposed towards Americans. But the other way is the more derogatory sense, sometimes almost tantamount to a slur. Last week, I mentioned how Kosterliski had dined at the home of prominent rancher John Slaughter. Kosterliski was well-liked and of a good station, so he was referred to as a Mexican official, or just an official from Mexico. But Rachel St. John, in her book, Line in the Sand, remarks that the Slaughter family wouldn't have thought of making guests like Kosterliski eat in what they called the Mexican dining room. That was for cowboys and hired hands, you can guess of what nationality, whom Mrs. Slaughter described as usually pretty dirty. The Douglas Dispatch newspaper also reflects this dualism, quick to praise Mexican officials, but also lamenting the ruckus caused by some ethnic Mexicans, whom the newspaper blamed for starting brawls and engaging in petty crime. I want to look at this latter definition of Mexican first, which was the maligned group that really ramped up immigration in the first couple decades of the 20th century, especially after the Mexican Revolution kicked off in 1911. During the latter part of the 1800s, it is truly difficult to know who was crossing and staying in Arizona. 
The majority of immigrants from Mexico tended to stay in the southern part of the territory, so Pima, Cochise, and Graham counties, which just so happened to be where most of the mining operations were. And technically speaking, they aren't exactly immigrants because they were not seeking U.S. citizenship and most moved back and forth across the border with impunity. Either they were fleeing instability in their home country and then moving back when things calmed down, or they happily worked for more money in the U.S. to either send home to their families or with the objective of eventually returning to live in Mexico. Again, that began to change after they started the Mexican Revolution through their home country into nearly 10 years of pure chaos, so many workers called for their families to join them safely up north. Between 1900 and 1910, the number of Mexican-born people in Arizona doubled, from a little over 14,000 to nearly 29,500, while a decade later during the Mexican Revolution, the native Mexican population in Tucson grew by like 75%. As historian Thomas Sheridan points out, on the other side of the border, these workers and immigrants had a variety of ways to define themselves that disappeared once in America. While they may have identified as being from Jalisco, Michoacan, Chihuahua, Coahuila, Sonora, or even a tribe like the Yaqui or the Mayo, when they crossed the line, they were seen as simply Mexican by Arizonans. And the influx of all these Mexicans were the more elite in the territory, who expressed concerns that these Mexican quote-unquote peons would pauperize American workers by undermining their ability to get honest work. Again, Sheridan makes a great point that Arizona didn't really have a large African-American presence, and the Amerindians had all been rounded up on reservations at this point, so it fell to Mexicans to become the forgotten cogs in the industrial machine and the focus of racist policies. We will touch more on this when we get to the labor movements of the period, but of course, Mexicans made less than their American and European contemporaries at the mines where they labored. One of the rationales for this was that Mexicans were less cultured and therefore needed less. A federal investigator would say, quote, The wants of the Mexican peon are hardly more complex than those of the Indian from whom he is descended, end quote. Mine owners also made the argument that Mexicans were mostly transitory single men, while Americans were good family men with more mouths to feed at home. This argument just sort of ignored the fact that in many instances, these transitory single men were actually sending most of their income to support families back in Mexico. Ironically enough, while white upper-ups sweated about immigration and what effect the Mexicans would have on their American territory, the mines and other businesses actually employing Mexicans used these same racist arguments to say that more immigration was needed. According to these business owners, Mexicans were docile, pliable, and lacking ambition, making them the perfect cheap labor. Plus, hey, they don't really want to be naturalized, so once they are done working here, we can just send them back to where they came from. Mining camps also begin to be divided into the white camp and the Mexican camp, not by any sort of official rules, but mostly from societal conventions. Now, there is one important aspect about this that I have been woefully neglecting, and that is the fact that at this point in history, Mexicans were not seen as something 
other than whites. That is to say, legally, ethnic Mexicans, because of their Spanish heritage, were considered white, just like the waspiest person you can find in New England. The idea of whiteness was still being culturally defined during this period, but the courts had ruled that Mexicans were not some other race. So while the territory passed statutes banning white Arizonans from marrying Amerindians, blacks, Chinese, Indians, that is, people from India, and people from Southern Asia, they could still legally marry Mexicans. And during the 1800s, marriages between Americans and Mexicans was pretty common, with nearly a quarter of all marriages in Tucson before 1879 being between American and Mexican spouses. Further afield and closer to the border, this trend would continue up until the 1900s. However, in the early 20th century, ethno-racial boundaries began to solidify somewhat, and these marriages became increasingly uncommon. By 1910, only about 10% of marriages in Tucson involved Americans and Mexicans. The children of these intermixed families from the previous generation even began to increasingly marry ethnic Mexicans, and so families began to increasingly become either strictly Mexican or strictly American. I keep mentioning Tucson because that really was the heart of Arizona's Hispanic community, thanks to its long ties to Mexico and even Spain. But it's also the place where we see the other type of Mexican, the prominent individual who just happened to be from Mexico, flourishing. Historian Eric V. Meek says that, in addition to the various interracial barrios where the lower classes intermixed, a middle class and even elite Mexican community grew. During the Mexican Revolution, many prominent leaders, having to head north for this or that reason, would even find refuge in Tucson. These were a relatively small minority of well-off businessmen, mostly merchants, who had an incentive to get American citizenship because of the economic and social ties that would garner from their American neighbors. So immediately, their experience and aims are quite different from the lower-class ethnic Mexicans who are crossing the border at the same time. One example of this is Federico Ronstadt, who was the son of a wealthy German father and Mexican mother who immigrated from Sonora to Arizona in 1882, crossing at Nogales. Ronstadt's lighter skin, education, wealth, and connections through his family set him up for a level of success that most Mexicans couldn't claim. At first, he made custom wagons and offered transportation in southern Arizona and Sonora, signing contracts with men such as William C. Green, the owner of the Four Seas Mining Operation in Cananea. From there, he diversified, building electric streetcars, selling automobiles, auto parts, and hardware. He became a pillar of the community and a respected citizen, a Mexican in the best sense of the term. Also, if Ronstadt's name sounds familiar to you, either because you are a longtime resident of Tucson or a music lover, give yourself five points for paying attention. Helping along this divide between Mexicans and Mexicans was some ambivalence among the middle class and well-to-do expats from the South about the sudden increase in immigration of the other kind of Mexican. 
The more well-to-do Mexicans watched the decline in their prestige. They saw the decrease in interracial marriages, the dearth of Mexicans serving as mayors, sheriffs, and legislators, the lack of jury summons, and the uptick in pink slips to Hispanic men when the economy dipped. And they saw their ability to make it in a white America slowly eroding. And since Arizonans often lumped Mexican-Americans in with Mexicans, many began to blame their plight on the recent influx from the South. This can be seen in the Hispanic Mutual Aid Societies that existed in Arizona, which were based on the principle that Mexicans had a common cultural heritage and an obligation to help each other, regardless of their nationality. However, the more well-off Mexican-Americans came to resent a little the Mexican nationals working in rural areas or mines and living in the poorer barrios. Meeks quotes another historian who says that while the members of these societies agreed in principle about needing to uplift the dignity of their own race, they also started promoting principles such as the love of work and self-improvement and actively encouraged working-class Mexicans to moderate their customs. In the 1920s, one mutual aid society would join forces with the Phoenix Americanization Committee to establish the Friendly House in South Phoenix. The goal of the Friendly House was to turn Mexicans into Americans, teaching courses on civic virtue, home economics, hygiene, and English. I plan to explore what it means to be Mexican in Arizona as we move forward, especially when we cover the labor movements coming in the next couple of decades. But for now, just keep in mind this split between Mexican-Americans who wanted to assimilate and to be seen as American, and Mexican nationals who were interested in retaining their cultural identity. But I want to end today by addressing another group that I have barely touched on in this podcast and whom Americans just simply lumped in with Mexicans anyway. So let's do some important background work discussing the Yaqui. The Yaqui have been around for the entire length of our story so far, and even beyond that, but always too far south to feature in the narrative. They were first encountered by the Spanish in the early 1500s, where they were farming corn, squash, beans, cotton, and tobacco along the namesake Yaqui River, including the also namesake Yaqui Valley in southern Sonora. These natives spoke, and continue to speak, an Udo-Aztecan language, specifically a branch called Cajita, which was comprised of roughly 10 mutually intelligible languages spread across various peoples in Sonora and Sinaloa. The Yaqui refer to themselves as the Hiaki, or the Yoame, and thus ends my dry spell of not butchering perfectly good Amerindian names. These two terms just sort of mean people, which you may have noticed is a trend in most Amerindian names for themselves. By the time the Spanish encountered them, they estimated that the Yaqui numbered some 30,000. The Spanish used their standard playbook of sending in Jesuit friars to convert, pacify, and Spanishize these people, which, for all intents and purposes, went as well as it usually did. The Yaqui baptized their children, married in the church, and attended Mass, but they also mixed their growing Catholicism with a lot of their own cultural traditions. The real problem was when silver was discovered in the nearby community of Alamos in the 1700s, which led to an influx of Spanish settlers looking to make it rich. 
These encroached on the Yaqui Valley in the nearby Mayo Valley, home of the Mayo people, and the Spanish again dipped into their standard playbook of overworking Yaqui laborers, taking their land, and the usual atrocities. So the Yaqui, dipping into the standard Amerindian playbook, went into revolt in 1740. Now, this rebellion was put down, but it did lead to an almost permanent distrust of first the Spanish and then the Mexicans, as the Yaquis demanded a clear title to the mission lands that were so clearly theirs. The antipathy against whomever was ruling out of Mexico City can be seen in 1825 when the Yaquis declined a request to help chase down Apache. This led to a years-long conflict and the rise of a great Yaqui guerrilla leader named Juan Banderas before things eventually settled down again into an uneasy equilibrium. The turmoil in Mexico over the next 50 years or so would mean the Yaqui pretty much had free range over their beloved valley, as the tribe was wooed by many would-be warlords to be used against their enemies. And the Yaquis had this type of good historical luck to really only pick the winning side when asked to dive into other conflicts. Through it all, however, what they really wanted was just someone to acknowledge, okay, your lands are yours and we'll stay away. Unfortunately, as history has shown us again and again, this is a bridge too far for both the United States and Mexico. With the establishment of the Porfiriato and then the rule of the Triumvirate in Sonora, Mexico calmed down and the issue of the Yaqui land again became an issue. And this leads us back into episode 153 as the economic forces transforming Sonora soon came to both the Mayo and Yaqui valleys. As mining boomed and railroad spur lines radiated outward to serve them, land speculation became a big deal. Tales of the rich alluvial soils of the Yaqui River, land that could now be easily reached by the Iron Horse, were spreading rapidly, and Mexicans and Americans alike eyed them eagerly for massive export agriculture. In 1880, Mexico City dispatched surveyors to subdivide and portion out the land in both the Yaqui and Mayo Valleys. The Yaqui were then given tiny parcels of the newly surveyed land in the hopes that they would all just settle down and become smallhold farmers. As you might imagine, the Yaquis weren't happy with the magistrates basically taking a dollar and leaving them five cents, so they did what came naturally and fought for their land. This led to the bloody War of the Yaqui in 1885 and 1886 that ended with the death of the great Yaqui leader Cajeme. Still, this didn't resolve the issue, and the Yaqui would be in rebellion again less than a decade later, which led to the last treaty signed between them and Mexico in 1897, where they again insisted on being, quote-unquote, given the land in the valley and everyone else kept out. However, this was not to be, and Mexican, and now American encroachment, continued. Seriously overpowered militarily and economically, and after the death of the leader Tetabiate, many Yaquis did what they always did. They took to the hills and continued on as guerrilla fighters. I wouldn't call the Yaquis the Apache of Mexico because, well, as we know, the Apache were the Apache of Mexico. The country was dealing with them too in the 1880s, but the Yaquis were just as stubborn and just as dreaded. I did mention in episode 148 how the Rurales, the Mexican rural units, asked the Arizona Rangers for their help in catching any Yaquis trying to slip across the border. So basically, the 
opposite of the game the Apache always played. But one of their time-tested tactics, and for most guerrilla fighters, if we are being honest, was to disappear into a group of non-combatants. And that's important because there were plenty of Yaki out there hired to work in the mines, on the railroads, and in the fields. In cities, Yaki's could also be found laboring as masons, carpenters, tanners, weavers, and cobblers. The irony is that they were all loved by Mexicans and Americans as the best workers around. They were even top-notch sailors and pearl divers. Ramon Corral declared that a Yaki or Mayo could do twice the work of a white laborer, while an American foreman, with just a thin coating of racist attitudes, declared that one Yaki worker was worth two ordinary Americans or three ordinary Mexicans. This is high praise, but we have to remember that the Yaki were used as grunt labor. They drew water and hewed wood. They didn't run businesses or administer anything. And now we have this problem of discerning the non-combative Yaki, referred to as monsos, from the guerrilla fighters, known as broncos. By the turn of the 20th century, the residents of Sonora feared encountering Yaki just as much as they ever had the Apache, and hit-and-run raids became a common occurrence. And so, in the early 1900s, President Porfirio Diaz decided that the only answer was the one the Americans had taken with their Amerindians. They had to deport every last single Yaki. Something along these lines had already been going on during the last few rounds of hostility, with captured Yaqui fighters being shipped to southern Mexico, where they were unceremoniously drafted into the army. Many more women and children were taken and deported to who knows where. They just were never seen in Sonora again. So the governor of Sonora, one of the triumvirate running the state, started putting the squeeze on the Yaqui Mansos, declaring that they had to live in restricted districts in segregated barrios. This cut off the guerrilla fighters from sympathetic aid, and the military slowly began to root out the insurgents. By 1907, deportation was fully underway, with many being sent south and sold as laborers on plantations. And yes, you heard that right. They were sold. Straight up slavery. No bueno. One estimate is that 15,000 Yaqui were deported between 1902 and 1908. The only um, saving grace was that an economic downturn in 1908 put an end to selling Yaquis. So, yay for economic downturns. At this point, you might be saying, David, this is a very tragic story, but did you get lost again? We started this episode at the border, but over the last 30-plus minutes, we have just wandered further and further south into Mexico. And that's true, we have, but I make no apologies. Because as the Yaquis were undergoing this incredibly harsh, horrific experience, they did what everyone else in Mexico was doing during tough times. They decided to head to the United States. Eventually, the explosion of the cotton industry will draw many Yaquis up to the Salt River Valley, where they will settle in the community of Guadalupe. The immigration of the Yaqui into the U.S. will play a role in our story moving forward, as after they cross the border, the Yaquis will kind of blend into the Mexican immigrants they were crossing with. In fact, to many Americans, they would be 
Mexicans. And the question of Yaqui identity is something we are not done talking about by a long shot. But I'm going to leave things here this week, though there is a lot more that we could talk about. However, I'm going to save that for upcoming episodes as we deal more with labor movements and the cotton boom in coming decades. This is usually the point where I say, join me next week as we discuss insert teaser here. Unfortunately, this time I'm going to say join me in two weeks. I know I just got back from a hiatus, but I'm going to have to take a week off for two reasons. The first is because I've actually been asked to speak at a school about my podcasting experience in Arizona history, and I desperately need to make sure that I have that well in hand because I don't want to turn anyone off by being a lousy presenter. And secondly, because I almost accidentally glossed over something that would have been a very glaring omission on this podcast and that I need to do a lot more research on. So, join me in two weeks as we tackle the complicated legacy of the Phoenix Indian School and the U.S. policy of trying to turn Amerindians into their idea of Americans. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.